Purukata Adonai Elohenu Melekaolam Asher Kitshanu be mitzvotav vetzivanu la asok be divre Torah Ve ha'arevna Adonai Elohenu et divre Torateka befinu ufi amka bet Israel Venie anaknu vetza etza enu vetza etza e amka bet Israel Kulanu yodea shemeka velom de Torateka lishma Baruch Ata Adonai, Hamlamet Torah Leamo Yisrael. Baruch Habab Hashem Adonai. Amen. Well, it is Parsha Vayelik, and we are almost done with Sefer Devarim and heading into a new season of the Torah portions. So, Mashiach hasn't come back yet, so we're waiting, and uh, the best way to wait is to be as violent as possible. So, with that being said, I'd like to welcome you to the Vayelik GT, the Geula Talk. And I am uh, currently uh, looking for some uh, different developments. So, stay tuned on some uh, different ways to go through the Parshot. Um, I definitely want to pick back up on Tour de Basora, and I know I've been talking about Garrett Romans. Um, I will be doing a study series as opposed to a, uh, like what I've been doing. So I'm going to be more, uh, you know, I guess behind the scenes with it. You'll be able to see me, uh, how I think through and put everything together. So that'll be fun just to do that. You know, um, one of the things with going through the letters of Shaul and Kepha and Yochanan and uh, other of the Shliakim is that these are commentaries and uh, life experience halakhic uh, sources that are given to people who are already studying the Torah and those who are entering into Torah-centered Judaism, you know, through Mashiach Yeshua, because a lot of these congregations are like pagan headquarters, you know, like all the Greek gods that you could shake a stick at. It's like, okay, let's set up a Lapid synagogue right here. It's like, okay, so yesterday I was worshiping so-and-so, now I'm loving Hashem. So what do I do? And that's pretty much what we're looking at with the letter. So obviously you can see where a lot of uh, loss of information and things like that could happen. So really trying to not put ourselves in positions where we're taking these letters and making this our main source because the meat of it will come from the sources already. You know, if you're studying Torah, if you're studying Jewish literature, you will get all of that information. And this is why we're so just surprised in a beautiful way when we're reading something and we'll be like, wait a minute, that was what Hebrews was getting at. You know, and so you'll start to connect those dots. And by the way, this is the way that we're supposed to study the Torah anyway, because we're supposed to reach out from Yaakov to Asaph. And what do I mean by that? Remember, I went back over the story of Yaakov and Asaph, and Yaakov grabbed onto the heel of Asaph. And there's this picture where, in that verse in the in the Torah, where Yaakov is born grabbing onto the heel of Asaph. That whole verse, the uh, the letters uh, that are initial letters in that verse, like one letter of each of those words in that phrase spell out Yeshua. And so 
the ayin of Yeshua, which is missing in Yeshua's name today, is attached to Asaph. This is why Asaph has the rest of the story, i.e. they have Yeshua, which is the illuminator of all of scripture. So they have like the secret weapon to really put all the pieces together, basically. And so this is why when we come from Torah, come from sources, extending over into Yeshua's words, extending over into Shaul's words and Kepha's words and things like that. You know, this is where everything happens. It all connects. It all matches up. So anyway, that's a long digression on that. So my intro to Vayelik, I'm going through insights and I find it very interesting because, you know, there's this seemingly this idea that Vayelik is the end of the Torah portions. And I'm like, but wait, there's Hazinu and there's Vezotabaraka. And when you look at Vayelik, it is the 52nd or the 51st Torah portion. Because remember how I was saying that uh, Nitzavim and Vayelik are normally read together and they're only split up on certain times. So really 52 is 51 or 51 is 51 and 52, if that makes any sense. Uh, if you split the Torah portions up, they're really one though. And again, the the his, the Kehert uh, Humash on the overview brings down that Nitzavim and Vayelik are intrinsically connected. So it's two parts to the covenant. Va uh, Nitzavim is Hashem's part and Vayelik is our part. And so this is likened to a person who's standing and then one who walks. Hashem stands us up and then we must walk, you know, just the way you do to a baby. You know, you help your baby stand. And then when as they get stronger, they begin to walk. Right. And so we always have this whole thing. where We're like, come on, you can do it. And then when they start walking, we're like, wait a minute. We don't need you walking around. You're getting into stuff. And it's just like, well, you wanted me to do this. And it's like, well, I didn't want you to get into stuff. I just want you to walk. But anyway, uh, so just a, a beautiful picture there that Hashem is the one who stands us up, you know, and standing us up is like into a resurrection. Because when you uh, bring forth someone from the dead, they stand up, you know, they raise up from their grave. And so Hashem being the one who is the life and the resurrection. Oh, wait, Yeshua is the life and the resurrection. Oh, wait. How did he get that power? Hashem. OK, anyway. So, yeah, so life and resurrection. And then we're the ones who are supposed to walk it out. This is why salvation doesn't stop with grace. We walk in grace which is Torah, because the only place to find grace, which you have to find it, the way you find it is by engaging it. You know, Hashem stands with his arms outstretched all day. That's his grace. And once we come to him, then we experience him. We get to know him, which is all that working knowledge and understanding of who he is. So this is the intro to Vayelik. Uh, I want to just go back over the overview, so make sure we're all literally on the same page. It says this, Nitzavim and Vayelik allude to the two complementary aspects of our own spiritual lives. We all have to learn how to stand firm vis-a-vis -vis those aspects of our spiritual life that require uncompromising solution 
as well as how to constantly progress vis-a-vis those aspects of our spiritual lives that require continuous change, growth, and development. This dichotomy is evident in the Torah itself, whereas the written Torah is fixed, unchanging text, the oral Torah is an ever-expanding, dynamic corpus of explanation of the written Torah and its application to the ever-changing specificities of each generation. Even the oral Torah itself exhibits this dichotomy, inasmuch as it is constantly broadening expanse of new insights, can develop only within the Torah's own fixed guidelines that govern the derivation of such insights. This is how we understand the sage's statement that any new insight that a veteran student will ever derive has already been given to Moshe at Sinai. For more information, see Megillah 19b, Yerushalayimi Talmud Peya 2.4, Shemot Rabbah 47.1, Vayikra Rabbah 22.1. Sources are cited in Lakute Sikot, volume 19, page 252, notes 20 and 21. That's how you source things out. So what we see here is this idea that the oral Torah, first of all, is not adding or subtracting from the Torah. Because there is always the common thought that, you know, the rabbis, they like to add stuff. And, you know, I don't know what's up with them. They're just making making life hard and they're destroying the word of God. They're trampling grace underfoot. It's like, well, you know, if there wasn't an oral Torah, you would celebrate Shabbat in the dark. Because what you're going to do when your candles go out? Literally, because, you know, and and furthermore, you probably wouldn't even have candles if you didn't know oral Torah. Because it's like, keep the Shabbat, you know, observe Shabbat, keep it holy, you know, um, don't uh, kindle a fire. Uh, You know, you are to do no ordinary work, um, you know. And it's just kind of like, okay, so how do I keep and guard the Shabbat and do those things? How do I set apart this day and make it holy? And it's just kind of like, well, I could. And the moment you do that, you get yourself into a position of traditions of men, literally your own traditions. And so this is why we can also know that the oral Torah is not traditions of men because the Torah itself says you're to appoint leaders and judges for yourselves, you know, and those leaders and judges are divested with power to make laws and rulings to help us stay within the bounds of Torah. So if we know we're not supposed to kill anybody, this is why in the oral Torah, it talks about not hating people in your heart. Oh, Yeshua said that. Yep. That was one thing, you know, and how loving your neighbor is loving Hashem and your Uh, preserving the image of Hashem, like these are all oral Torah concepts. And so, you know, that's the whole thing about this ever changing, ever expanding uh, oral Torah that we have that has to meet the specificities, like specific circumstances of each generation. Because previous generations, they didn't have computers. So what are we going to do with that? You know, what's up with this computer thing? How do we make you know this keep us inside the bounds of torah so that we're not violating the law of god you know this is one of the reasons why adam making a fence law saying hey don't touch the tree 
If you say don't touch the tree, you don't have to worry about saying don't eat the fruit. If you don't touch the tree, there's no way you can eat the fruit, you know, and, you know, I'd like to just extend this example to something very practical for uh, Shomer Nagia, because I find it so amazing that that is a, a guarding of touch is such a wonderful uh, enactment uh, via the oral Torah, because, you know, in a day and age where uh, philandering is happening and all sorts of affairs and things like that, well, if you don't even touch the opposite sex, much less be alone with the opposite sex, then it's really hard to have an affair or some kind of uh, immoral, uh, you know, kind of thing, engagement with them. And so I think that's really cool just on a, you know, very practical note that, you know, it's really safe on that end because you distance yourself away from sin, you know, and if we're spending so much time, you know, engaged in, uh, you know, seeking to understand deeper insights and the minutia of Torah, you know, we get ourselves that much more further away from sin and we engage that much more further into Hashem. Because remember, the Torah is the mind of Hashem that was brought down and in insights that I was sharing from the 10 Days of Repentance podcast. So, you know, I think it's just a very beautiful thing on the Vayelic side that Hashem, as we walk with him, we pretty much have a small picture, I would like to guess and imagine, of what it was like to walk with Hashem in the cool of the day when we were in Ghani Din. Because the whole thing with the voice of Hashem is it walked. It said the voice of Hashem was walking, which it uses the word holek, which is from halaka. You know, the, the root of halaka is holek, which means to walk. And vayelek has that same root, lek. So walking is all connected to that. So one of the, the most beautiful quotes that I got to read as well from the insights on Vayelik, just doing an overview and search and, uh, you know, through the insights was a vote 520 that says, Chazal teach us, be bold as a leopard, light as an eagle, fast as a deer and strong as a lion to do the will of your father in heaven. I love it. That was amazing. So just a very poetic, beautiful picture of how we should walk. Bold, light, you know, and then fast and strong, all to do the will of our father. You know, what I mean, just and it gives us pictures it's like be like a leopard, an eagle, a deer and a lion at the same time. Like, go. It's like, all right, cool. All right, let's get into some gematria. You know, I don't like gematria that much. So, you know, this part right here might be a little rough because, you know, I don't really like gematria. You know what I'm saying? Just kidding. Anyway, uh, having a little fun. All right, just joking. Little little podcast humor. Okay, ha, ha, ha. Anyway, Vyelek. It's four letters. Okay, four letters, which, you know, I think about our four limbs. You know, we have two arms, two legs. You know, it's interesting that your arms make a certain motion when you're walking. Some people... I guess if they're really focused or maybe this is naturally how they do it. Some people don't move their arms when they walk. And that's kind of like interesting because normally your arms just kind of swing, you know, as you walk. So anyway, Vyelik, as you're walking, you know, if you want to picture that word, you can picture a human walking upright, arms and legs, you know, four letters. You got two arms and two legs. That's four. Okay. Anyway, that just popped into my head. So I thought I'd share 
the gematria of Vayelik is 66. Which is funny, because when you do the books of the Tanakh with the writings of the Gospels, Acts, and the letters and revelations, you get 66. They like to call it 66 books of the Bible, you know, so... That's interesting. So literally walking out the word of God, there's that picture. Six plus six is 12. And what do we know about 12? I'm glad you asked because I'm always ready to talk about 12, you know. So let's go ahead and jump into the number 12. I want to, uh, let's see, we've talked about the path of service to Hashem. Talked about the tribes. We talked about pathways to God. Let's talk about the hours and the months, shall we? Again, this is from Jewish Wisdom in the Numbers. It says, The physical world fashioned during the six days of creation finds its perfect structure in the subdivision of a day and of a year into units of twelve. Every day measures as 12 hours of day time and 12 hours of night. The 12 units of a day have their parallel in the 12 months of the standard year. Like a cube's 12 edges, time divided into 12 periods frame the life of a Jew. This enables him to interact within the confines of the natural realm and to dedicate his energies to the service of God. So you have this picture here of 12 being a way to enable us and the natural realm to dedicate our energy to service of God. This is why halakhic times are so cool. This is why knowing the days and the times and the seasons are amazing which we should know is Yehudim, by the way. We should stay 30 days ahead of all the Yom Tovim. So right now, if you're not studying about Sukkot, if you're not studying about Yom Kippur, you might want to do that. And uh, obviously we're less than 30 days away from that. Uh, and then as we get closer to Hanukkah, might want to start studying Hanukkah. So, you know, try to stay aware of that because, you know, Shaul HaShliach mentions about being aware and not being caught like a thief in the night, you know, because like a thief in the night when they break in and stuff, you know, so it's like you want to be aware, you know, and he was saying this to the congregation in Thessalonica, and he was talking about how, you know, the day of the Lord's coming, but to you, you'll, you'll be aware, you'll know, because you'll know about the times and the season. Now, you won't know the day or the hour, but you'll know about the time and the season. So that's, that's that. So that's the number 12. And so already just looking at Vayelik, we're already making ourselves aware of how to walk in this world. So uh, there's that. All right. One of the things that really intrigued me about Vayelik is how you can look at this word and see where it occurs throughout the Torah. And specifically, the law of first use. So I was going with that because I wanted to do a little swerve study and just kind of look at 
how it occurred in the Torah portion, because when we get to Vayelik, we're seeing Moshe went. And there's a whole drop of commentary about where did he go, because it doesn't really say where he went. And, you know, so it's just kind of like if we dive into the essence of what it means to go, then we can get a bigger picture of where Moshe possibly went, as well as all the commentary. Because, again, there's constant information being readily available, layers of layers of insights. So this is another way to kind of look into that. Okay. So we got Bereshit 12.4. And it says, Vayelech Abraham Ka'asher. That's the phrase. And then just checking some last letters. We have Reshmim Kaf. That is 260... Okay, we're good. All right, just doing some checks here. 21 plus 6 is 27, 28. All right, cool. Always checking the initial letters, the first letter of each word and the last letter of each word. See if you see anything. That's always a good idea. Check the spelling. Check the gematria. Rearrange the letters. Always do that. You'll always find some good insights uh, if you spend enough time doing that. But anyway... So this phrase is when Abraham is going. So this whole section is the beginning of Parsha Lech Lecha. And so uh, Hashem is calling Abraham to depart and leave from his household, like under his father and his mother and, you know, come and be with Hashem, which sounds really like, you know, a marriage because it says that the the child shall leave the father and mother and or the son shall leave his father and his mother and become attached and one with his wife which you kind of get this whole picture with abraham is that he's leaving his father and his mother obviously he's married to sarah but they're all going to be engaged with hashem mind you hashem didn't tell him where to go just like moshe moshe went but we don't know where Abraham is going, but we don't know where. And so that's a whole thing about, you know, when Hashem is calling us to serve him, we know how we're supposed to walk and the path along which we walk, but we don't know per se exactly where we need to go. This is why having the not a save nishma, the we will do and we will hear mentality and heart set is so vitally crucial. Because there are things that you're not doing now that you will be doing. And there are things that you're currently doing now that you will no longer be doing. And you want to make sure that that's all connected to you walking with Hashem. So, you know, being able to embrace the mitzvot, being able to let go of things that are not uh, beneficial in our walk. You know, like me, I used to love eating cheeseburgers. And then I came to Sar Shalom and, you know, I became converted and it was just like, okay. So obviously along that whole path, I was learning, hey, we separate meat and dairy and we eat kosher. Sleeka. And we eat kosher. Not like, you know, separation of meat and dairy isn't separation of meat and dairy is not kosher like. That's that's all included. But like, hey, your meat that you eat 
needs to be kosher meat as well as separating meat and dairy like it's all wrapped in there so i used to love mcdonald's which i'm so super excited now that i found out there's a parv meat mcdonald's and eretz israel and i need to get there so whenever that can happen that'd be cool um but anyway so i was so into you know double quarter pounders and things like that and it was just like okay so i'm walking with a shem and i eat kosher meat and i also separate meat and dairy and it was just like my struggle was okay i can just take the cheese off and it was like nope because it's still ground beef and i was like okay well i'll switch to chicken and it's like, well, nope, chicken is meat, and that also needs to be kosherly slaughtered. And it's like, okay, well, I'll take away the chicken nuggets, and I'll just eat the fries. And then you find out, well, there's cross-contamination. Then you're like, okay, so I will not eat at McDonald's at all. And it's like, well, you can get a drink if you need to, or use the restroom. It's like, okay, well, Brukashim. There are sliced apples come in a package if it really comes down to it, if you need, like, an emergency. But there's all sorts of halakhic things about emergency eating and things like that but that's not here or there for this tour uh podcast but i just wanted to point out that you know the vialic part of us being with hashem as changes happen and this is exactly what the overview was saying you know there are ever growing constantly broadening expanse of new insights and so it happens with us that we will be doing the same thing so we have to lech lecha. We have to go to ourselves, which our true selves are found in Hashem. This is why Mashiach says, when you lose your life for my sake. And who is Yeshua? The living Torah. So when you lose your life for the Torah, which is for its sake, for the sake of Hashem, for the sake of he who commanded it, now you're going to find out who you truly are. And it doesn't matter where you're going at that point, because... Where you're going is going to involve you attaching yourself to Hashem and bringing salvation and redemption to the world. So there's that. If you want to learn how to let your light so shine before men and be salt and light of the earth and glorify your Father who is in heaven and all that goodness, that's how that works. Another occurrence of Vayelek was this phrase. Ola Vayakam Vayelek El Hamakom. And arose and went to the place. And this is from the Akedah. So Abraham is arising up early in the morning to go to Hamakom. Which remember, that's the name of Hashem. Mount Moriah being Hamakom. That is the place of the place that is not confined to time or space. Okay, so there was a whole drop on that in Parshat Nitzavim and the Rosh Hashanah prep. So uh, you can go back and get more information on that because Cliff Notes is the six directions of space, the up, down, forward, back, and left and right and all that kind of stuff. That doesn't exist in Hashem. And then time doesn't exist in Hashem. And this is the place of the temple. This is the temple mount. This is, well, I mean, the temple mount as far as the precincts of the temple and the ark and the tablets the holy of holies like all of that so one of the midrashim brings down that this mountain was uh hovering it was surrounded by clouds of glory pillars of fire and it was hovering and so that's what abraham saw off in the distance you know 
And so, yeah, so the whole thing about mountains being lifted up and all that kind of stuff, that that was Hamakom, which is Mount Moriah. The reason why Mount Sinai also was lifted up and hovered over the people was because it was originally a part of Mount Moriah. And after the Akira was when Mount Sinai and Mount Moriah were split and so I learned that from the legends of the Jews, but I want to know the source of where they got it from and I can't find it yet. So still waiting on that. But in the meantime, this is why it's no uh, surprise that the Torah was given on Mount Sinai. And, you know, it also lifted up in the air just like Mount Moriah did. So for what that's worth, talking about casting mountains into the sea, if you have that faith, you know. Well, that kind of that picture is already laid out for us as far as precedent goes. So, uh, yeah. So another aspect of Vayelech has to do with arising up, like lifting yourself up and going forth into the command of Hashem. So whatever Hashem commands you to do, you rise up and you go forth and you go do it. You know, you're going somewhere you already don't know, but you're like, Hashem, you told me to go here. And then on the way, you're given more commandments and you follow through with that as well. Total devotion to Hashem. This is probably why they say, you know, Vayelik is the summary of the Torah portions. And I'm like, man, this is crazy. So I can't remember where I read that at, but I'll have to find that and just make a note on that because that was crazy i can't believe i didn't put it in here because now that i talk about it it's just it's so like whoa throws me off it's like amazing but anyway uh the next one we got is later in the akida account where it says basvak be karnav vayelek avraham vayichach which is uh in the thicket were his horns and Abraham went and took. And so the ram that was caught in the thicket by its horns, Abraham went and he took it. So this is the place where the substitution happened during the Akedah. So this whole thing about Mashiach dying in our place because Mashiach's crucifixion is the Akedah. So, you know, there was the one who should have been offered up and then there was the one who was offered in its place. But the one who was offered in its place is accredited to the one who should have been offered up. This is why that ram is called Yitzhak. And this is why all of the commentary about the Akedah is about putting our trust in the Akedah for Hashem to uh, grant us favor, mercy, and atonement. And it's just kind of like, okay, so it was really the supernatural ram Again, Ha'ayil is the word for Ram, which rearranges to Elohai, which is my God. So literally my God was caught up in the thicket, sacrificed in my place, but it's accredited as if I was sacrificed. And it's like, okay, so that's the Akira, the place of being bound and marked, which is why if we're dressing modestly, if we're eating kosher, Shomer Shabbos, and all the other mitzvot that we can possibly fulfill, those show marks of us being offered to Hashem. And so, there's that. Alright, some more gematria. Gematria 
of Vayelech again is 66, which is the gematria for Le'ela, oh Le'ela, Mingo Birchata, Veshirata, Tushpikata, Kichusam, Damira, Be'oma, Ve'imru, Ve'imru, Amen. All right. I love that song. Moshav, killing it. Kosher Slaughter. Okay, anyway, so shameless plug for Moshav. All right, anyway, Le'ela. Why is Le'ela so important? Because it just so happens Parshav Ve'elech is read during the 10 days of repentance. And what's going on during these 10 days of repentance? Well, from the book of our heritage, they bring down... During the entire period of the 10 days of repentance, some have the custom of adding a word to the Kaddish prayer. The word Le'ela, which is beyond. It is repeated and we say Le'ela u Le'ela. Just like in the Moshav song. And it says others, for example, like the Chabad community, add the word during only during the Nela prayer. On Yom Kippur. And then it says the year round wording of this, uh, the Kaddish, it says alludes to the exaltation of God beyond all earthly benediction. The doubled usage for the 10 days of Teshuva bespeaks an even greater divine exaltation. In keeping with the central motif of the days of all, the acceptance of divine sovereignty. In addition, since the specified total number of words in the Kaddish has a particular significance, we contract two other words so that the total number of words remains constant. So there's this whole picture of there are literally specified words. There's a number, certain number of words per bracha, which is where a lot of other insights and things come from. So when we add this Leila word, we contract two other words Instead of saying min kol birkata, we say mikol birkata. So just kind of mashing those two words up there together. And it's just like, okay, because we got to fit in uleela. And this is all about doubling the expression for greater divine exaltation. Because during these 10 days, we really want to like double up on Hashem. You are our King Hashem. We crown you Hashem. We return to you. Like we exalt you. And this whole picture about Hashem being King is that if he is your King, you're his subject, which means it's not what you say that goes, but it's what he says that goes. And we have to make sure that we're not telling Hashem what he says, but that we're seeking Hashem for what he says. Because so many times we easily get caught up in saying, oh, yeah, Hashem is totally fine with this. And it's like, well, if you read his words, did he ever say this was OK? You know, and obviously this is why repentance is so beautiful, especially during this time, because if you're not constantly in the habit of making teshuva, this is your time. This is your moment. And if you're constantly in the habit of making teshuva, you get like this extra magnifying glass to really get down to what am I doing? How am I actually walking? What is my Vayelik? Where am I going? 
you know, and so this really beautiful time of introspection and really just zooming in on that and making sure, okay, I'm Shomer Mitzvot Lishma, you know, and making Teshuvah on Teshuvah, really changing my opinion of Hashem. You know, it's about Him. It's not about me. So I cannot have my way and I need to let Him have His way. So just kind of looking at all that. So this is a beautiful time. And it just so happens another gematria of Vayelik being 66 is the word Yavan, which is Greece. Now check this out. So I'm doing a search on Greece. So this is going to be a gauntlet of information. But this is from Ner Mitzvah. And it's talking about the kingdom of Greece. All right. Hold on to something. The kingdom of Greece wishes to uproot the bond of Israel and God. Stop. The kingdom of Greece, they speak Greek. What is the main language perpetrated by Asaph today to separate Israel from God? Yes, you guessed it. It's Greek. Yavon, if you look at the Yod, the Vav, and the Nun, there's a constant descent as you read that word from right to left. And what's ended up happening is there's this separation from oneness and unity. And there's a further descent into darkness. There's this gradual drop, this gradual decrease, if you will, to lower, below, below, and not in a humble way, but more in a descending down into an abyss or darkness of some sort. Because remember, Israel and God are a husband and wife. And Hashem said, I make a covenant with you that even if I am so put out and done with you, I will never be done with you. Like, that's the whole thing about the renewing of the covenant. So, yeah, we just talked about that in Parshat Nitzavim. So just go back to that and restudy that for more of that information. But here's the deal. If you're going to seek to drive a wedge between God and Israel and say, oh, God's done with the Jews and the name of the Messiah is a Greek name, which, by the way, that's what Jesus is. So if you're calling him Jesus, it's technically ultimately sourced from a Greek name, even though it's four steps removed from it. But you're ultimately pointing back to Greece. You're ultimately pointing back to that headquarters. And remember, Greece and Rome are like, I don't know, step cousin, sister, brother or something crazy because most of the Roman gods are really the Greek gods with Roman names and I digress from there but anyway all these cultures are lined up but they're all about dividing and separating so anyway it says the empire which is the next third of Daniel sees it as a leopard because this empire corresponds to the third aspect within a man the third aspect is the is as compared to the uh wow this is interestingly written for the third aspect as this empire contained wisdom which is secular understanding as we will explain at length for the entire essence of this empire was the search for wisdom but the wisdom of greek was very shallow because it wasn't torah wisdom so there's that i just inserted that part but the third aspect of man, secular, wisdom, Greek, they were all about searching for that. 
And it says, therefore, their attention was fixed upon the Torah and to nullify it from Israel. For they didn't want this wisdom specifically in that the Torah is a great wisdom and more elevated wisdom than human wisdom, which they, the Greeks, had. So, again, I said they had shadow wisdom. They wanted the wisdom of man, not the wisdom of God, which is Torah. This says, for it is the Torah and it is the wisdom of everything. This wisdom, which is upon everything, is not suitable to the nations, as explained in the Midrash. The Torah is not suitable for the nations. Wow, they just said that. The problem, not the problem, but understanding that in the context of if the nations are going to come from we want to nullify it from Israel. We want to take it and make it our own. And we're going to exalt human wisdom over Torah wisdom because we can tell Hashem it's OK. We can eat pork now because we have refrigerators. Now you're getting a picture of why the Torah is not suitable for the nations, because if they don't approach it as Israel, which would mean the Torah is for the nations because they are supposed to convert. They're supposed to be like Israel. And then they can embrace the Torah as opposed to not become like Israel and reject the Torah. And it's not suitable anymore. So just a little drop on that. But it says it says in the Midrash Lamentations, Rabbah 2.13, her king and her leaders are in exile. Torah is no more. If a man should say to you, there is wisdom among the nations, believe it. See, it is written I will make the wise vanish from Edom, understanding from Aesop's mount. Ovadia 1.8. That's Obadiah, who, by the way, was a convert from the house of Aesop. He was from Rome. He was a Roman that turned into a Yehudi. Get you some. I am also a former Roman turned into a Yehudi. Anyway, um, so I can kind of level with Ovadia. Asav used to be my uh, bread and butter, if you will. But anyway, uh, it says, If a man should say there is Torah among the nations, do not believe it. As it is written, her king and her leaders are in exile. Torah is no more. And thus the empire, which are the Greeks, did not oppose Israel except for regarding their Torah. Wow. Don't you ever feel that sometimes people don't oppose you except for Torah and they're like, I don't know why you do that. But anyway, digression, getting back on track. It says they did not oppose Israel, Greece, Yavon. They did not oppose Israel except for regarding the Torah. This is why <laughs> this just popped into my head. This is why when I think of Vayelik, which is walking, I think of that song. These boots were made for walking and that's just what they'll do. These boots are going to walk some Torah and they'll walk right over you. Speaking of Greeks, that is, that oppose Torah. Any Greeks that are with Torah, then, you know, we bring them in. We don't walk over people like that. But anyway, sometimes you just got to crush the head of the serpent, you know. You got to walk all over them. And that's just what you'll do. Anyway, a little Vialic drop. Back to the source over here. Again, this is from Nair Mitzvah. It says that, and this is what Daniel saw, that this third empire was the form of a leopard for this animal, which is the most fierce. As it says, where we read earlier, Pirkei Avot 520, be fierce like a leopard. 
Okay, anyway, so we should learn from this fierceness and use it. It says this is the character attribute which is suitable to those who are ready for wisdom. As the rabbi said in Pure Cab Vote 2 5, the intrinsically shame faced cannot learn. If you are shameless and just, you're just like, I don't care. You know, I'm going to do my thing. You can't learn. But if you're humble, you know what shame is and you cover up. Okay, now you're good. Anyway, therefore, also the character attribute of Yisrael is fierceness. As we said in Tractate Beitzah 52b. It is taught in a bereta in the name of Rabbi Mer. For what reason was the Torah given to the Jewish people? It is because they are intrinsically fierce. Come on. It says, a sage of the school of Rabbi Yisrael taught the following regard to the verse. From his right hand went a fiery law for them. One of my favorite passages, Devarim 33.2. HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, these ones, the Jews, are fit to be given a fiery law. They are those who say a different version of this bereta, which is the ways of these people, the Jews, are like fire. As were it not for the fact the Torah was given to the Jewish people, no nation or tongue could stand up to them. And behold, this is the same as what Rabbi Shimeon ben Lakish said. There are three fierce ones the jewish people among the nations the dog among animals and the rooster among birds get you some the explanation that because the jews because they the jews have the torah and for this reason their ways are fire for fire is definitionally aggressive and fierce therefore israel are the fierce ones among the nations and know that matter is acted upon and therefore human beings who are material entities are definitionally not fierce and strong. But Israel, who were given the Torah, are fierce and strong entirely. And this concept we have explained in many a place. So remember that burning bush? That burning bush was a bush of thorns, by the way, that Moshe encountered Hashem with the angel of Hashem standing in the middle of speaking with the voice of Hashem, just like Yeshua did. But anyway, I digress. That bush is considered to be Hashem dwelling with his people in exile. And when Mashiach takes on the crown of thorns, he's seen as weak. And us, when we're weak, Hashem is strong because we have his Torah. It's very fiery. It consumes us. So this whole picture about in our weakness, he is strong. Hashem is showing us, yes, your strength comes from your submission to the Torah, to my word, to my voice. And as you walk, you will be very fierce because it is not you who protect yourself. It is I who protect you. This is why one of the insights on the Akidas literally says, if you're diligent in reading the Akidah, reciting it daily, that its merits protects Jews from harm, like it protects you from harm. Now, obviously, that's not a hundred percent thing because we still, you know, get injured. We still, you know, unfortunately, until Mashiach returns, some of us die, fall asleep, you know, but overall, it is a source of protection for us. 
and furthermore, you know, protecting us from falling away from Hashem. If we constantly seek to attach ourselves to Hashem, then it becomes harder to fall away from Hashem. So there's just a picture of that. So anyway, so this whole thing about 66 being 66, the Gematria of Vayelik is also the Gematria of Yavan is a picture of what kind of walking we must have. We must have a fierce walking because usually Greece is okay with us, except for when it comes to the Torah. It's like, I want you to seek wisdom. I want you to seek beauty. You know, it's like, there's so much of that in the world. And it's like, yeah, I know. But that beauty is fleeting and it's vain because the Torah of God, the ultimate beauty is what's going to endure forever. This world will not endure forever. It's going to be remade over. The Alam Hazeh will eventually be transformed into the Alam Haba. Therefore, what we think that's pretty and amazing now, apart from Torah, is going to be a little ugly. It's going to be a little struggling during the transition phase. And then when the newness of everything happens, which comes through the Torah, then that true beauty that no one ever paid attention to is not going to be shown. And this is why it's important that, you know, those of us who are walking in Torah, those who are seeking Hashem, those of us who know what true beauty is and forsake the fleeting passions of this world, we can pay attention to that which is to come because the world and their rejection of Hashem, his Mashiach, his Torah, they're not being able to pay attention to the true beauty that is to come. So we have to focus on what is to come and walk through what is here now. What we're walking through now is going to prepare us for the world to come. So everybody get as many mitzvot as you can, gain as much merit as possible, spread as much light as possible so that you're ready for the Alam Haba. Okay, so there's a beautiful gematria form called Atbash. It's where, you know, you line up the Aleph Bet from Aleph to Tav going right to left. And then right underneath the Tav, going back from left to right, you go Aleph to Tav. So that you have the Aleph Bet mirrored over itself and you draw a line and each, num each letter substitutes for itself. So Alephs are Tavs, Sheens are Bets, and Resh is Gimel, so on and so forth. So when you look at that form of Gematria for Vayelik, you get the word 8Z, which is my tree. Like the word Etz with a Yod, my tree. And this reminded me of, okay, so if you're walking with a tree, Mashiach says that you are to carry your crucifixion stake. Carry your staros, as the Greek puts it, which always comes back to the word for eights, which is tree. This is why Mashiach was crucified and hung on a tree. And that's what we must carry with us. It's also likened to a tent peg, which is the encampments that every encampment we had to pick up our tent peg when, we, when it was time to move. So there's this whole picture of Vayelik is about walking and with Hashem. You know, and ultimately it's likened to us sacrificing ourselves daily. Because again, at the Akidah, Yitzhak had to carry the wood. And the Midrash Rabbah brings down that he carried his wood like one who carries his own crucifixion stake to his own demise. So there's that. So whether it's your living quarters, 
picking up and going where Hashem calls you, which is what Abraham did, by the way. A lot of tent peg moving, a lot of tent peg carrying. And, uh, you know, this is what we do as well. The children of Israel did it in the wilderness. And this is how we follow after Hashem. Take our own tent peg with us. We carry our tree. Okay, so ordinal gematria. So there's another layer of gematria where, you know, there are 22 letters. And so, you know, there's position 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 20. What comes out 21? Oh, yeah, 22. Anyway, those are all the position of the letters. So Yod is the 10th letter. You know, Kaf is the 11th letter. So those are ordinal gematria points. So when you do that for Vayelik, it's the word Okol, which is the word Aleph, Kaf, like the 11th letter, like I just mentioned, Lamed, which is the word for food or the word to eat. And so the way we walk with Hashem is we have to make His will our food. As Yeshua says, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. So there's that. And then, you know, uh, so how do you eat, by the way? How do you partake of? This is us bringing the word of God into our hearts. This is us speaking words of Torah as well as receiving words of Torah. So when you're listening to the Aliyah Day by Rabbi Griffin, you are eating. Okay, that's called eating. Your, your soul is eating. When you're davening from your siddur, your soul is eating. This is why it's meritorious or not really meritorious as much as it is uh, recommended and suggested that we read, you know, and follow the words that we're praying. You know, we, we need to see it, think about it and speak it like that's an eating process. The same way you look at where you're putting your fork or your spoon and you grab that food item and you put it in your mouth like that's what you're doing when you're reading the brachas, you're reading the Torah, you know, you're reading the prayers. That's an eating process. And another gematria, ordinal gematria for uh, Vayelik is Halevi, which is the, Le the Levite. And when you look at the Levite, this is one who connects you to Hashem. So ordering your life as you walk, you know, like your posture, correcting your posture and everything comes through the one who is your connector. So we all have to have a levy. This is typically a rabbi or a lay leader, teacher of some sort, a moray is what that's called, a teacher of Torah. And Bezrat Hashem, that's what my podcasts are for you, a connecting point to Hashem. So there's that. And out of nowhere, uh, order no gematria for Vayelik is Edom, Rome, Christianity, goodness. So when you look at this word, you get this picture of like, okay, so I'm supposed to walk. And I want to encourage us from this verse that says we're to be having the hands of Asaph, but the voice of Yaakov. And when you really look at that, you know, it's about there's this outward appearance of, man, this this can't seem right. This can't be true. Like, 
you know, the way Lapid looks to the world, Lapid Judaism looks like, okay, it's Christianity with Zitzit. And it's just like, no, we're not, you know, and this whole picture that, you know, we engage into the world and, you know, but yet we still remain pure. You know, we're in the world, but we're not of it. Asav was likened or was called literally a man of the field. You know, he's a great hunter and, you know, he trapped game with his mouth and things like that. And then Yaakov was a dweller of the tents of Torah. And so you fuse those worlds together. This is how we go out and we interact with the world. We return to Hashem. We go out into the world. We return to Hashem. We go out into the world. We have the hands of Asav, but the voice is the voice of Yaakov. So there's so much layers to that, but needless to say that Vayelik is this picture of Edom. Like we must endure through this exile of Edom. We must endure through Rome. And again, Yaakov grabs a hold of the heel of Asav, who's the progenitor of Edom. So we must grab a hold of this. We must take hold of it. Okay, we must clear the name of Mashiach. We must truly live and walk this faith out, you know, this way of life it is supposed to be, the true Mashiach being on display for the world to see and endure through the exile. So there's that. All right. So I was talking about how Vayelik is the 52nd Torah portion this year. And it's also the ninth parasha of Devarim. So a little bit on that is this, and this is from Ta'anit 5b. It says, and Rav Naman said to Rav Yitzhak, what is the meaning of that which is written? And it came to pass when Shamuel was old, which is from 1 Shamuel 8.1. And did Shamuel really grow old? Question mark. But he was only... 52 years old when he died. Moshe, 120 years old, is getting ready to die. Vayelek, right? Okay, 52nd Torah portion, right? Okay. Just a little connecting points. And it says, As the Master said in a Bereta that deals with divine punishment of Karet, which is one who dies at the age of 52 years, is not considered to have suffered premature death of karet. So premature death is uh, is karet. And it says, As this is the age of death of Shamuel of Rama, this shows that Shamuel died at the relatively young age of 52. That immediately struck a chord with me from Yochanan chapter 8, when it says, Abraham, your father, had gladness and joyous heart to see my day, the day of Mashiach. And he saw it and had Simcha. Therefore, those of Yehuda said to him, you do not yet possess 50 years, and yet you have seen Abraham, our father. Rebbe Melech Mashiach said to them, Amen, Amen, I say to you, before Abraham came into being, Anihu. They took up stones that they might stone him, but Rebbe Melech Hamashiach was hidden and departed out of the Beit Hamikdash. 
again, remember I said the Beit HaMikdash has no time and has no space in it. And here we have Mashiach doing his disappearing act in that very place. So the only way for us to see time and space is for Hashem to conceal himself. And so Mashiach is revealing himself when he disappears because he's showing us that I'm beyond time and space because I emanate from the one who sent me who has no time or space. If I conceal and conceal and conceal and conceal down, 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 go from Ain Sof and all that beyond and contract to the divine name, which is still without limit and form. Contract that down to Elohim. Now we got creation. Contract that down, you know, even more Adonai and all the other names and Yeshua HaMashiach and all of that. Now we're seeing this whole Zimzum is what that's called, a contraction, bringing it all down. And now we can have Hashem in the form of a man. And it's like, okay, so this is a whole lot of concealment here. So now we're just going to expand it and blow it all back up and Mashiach disappears. So there's a little Kabbalistic insight on that. But that's needless to say that they were saying Mashiach's not even 50 years yet. And so Mashiach is going to die the death of Karet, which is below 50. And so you have this whole picture here of, okay, so Mashiach subjugating himself to death, even to death on a crucifixion stake, already in the form of a slave and a servant. It's like, yeah, and now he's going to take on a very uh, strict judgment of Karet, you know, and it's just like he's going to be cut off before his time. And so uh, that's crazy. And so one who's reached at least beyond 50, especially 52, they're considered to have not been a person who died prematurely. So just a little tie and eat drop there. When we look at this 52nd tour portion about, you know, 52 being the age of the death of Shamuel. And he was not considered to be old even though he was old Moshe was not really considered to be old even though he's old because he was 120 but yet he, he kept all his strength you know he was 120 when he slayed Slichon and Og I mean those were giants Moshe was 120 I'm just saying I'm I'm not even like 35 and I don't want to fight a giant I mean I will because I got an Iron Man suit but I'm not just saying I just want to go out and fight a giant because I got a suit. And, you know, we don't need giants. Like, everybody needs to just love each other anyway. Yes, I'm saying I'm scared. Okay, but anyway. But if I had a suit, I would still be scared. <laughs> Moshe was 120. And he was a little scared, but he still did it. And this is what we call courage. Proceeding in the face of fear. All right, anyway. There's a couple of mitzvot in um, this parsha, and they're called the one of them is called the Hakel, and that's this whole like general assembly thing that happens during the Shabbatical years, the uh, Shemitah, and you gather everybody, man, women, children, infants, uh, babies of all ages, you know, and you bring them, and the king is going to read from the Torah. <laughs> 
And so uh, you have this picture kind of played out in Ezra and Nehemiah, by the way, when they rediscovered the Torah scrolls and everybody was like, oh, my gosh, this is so beautiful. Let's have two weeks of Sukkot. And it's like, OK, anyway. So this is found in Devarim 3111. When you look at that and the Hasidic insights bring down, it says the beginning of the book of Devarim. This is what the Hakel consists of because it says they read the whole Torah. Well, when you get into insights, you realize they don't read Bereshit through, like, Devarim, like all 53 Torah portions. They read selections of Devarim. So check it out. So it says, the beginning of the book of Devarim serves as an introduction to the following passages. By the way, Mashiach quoting Devarim mostly, I mean, he quoted other things, other passages from Torah. But him quoting Devarim specifically on occasions is the embodiment of him fulfilling the Hakel. Because remember, he's the king and he's reading the Torah to the people. So throughout Yeshua's life, you technically get the Hakel. Because as you can see, he definitely taught us about the Shema. He definitely taught about tithing, give to Caesar what is Caesar, give to God what is God's. He talked about the blessings and the curses. He literally demonstrated that with a fig tree. And then you got, you know, the passage about the king, you know, and he talks about, you know, you'll see the son of man coming in the right, sitting at the right hand and coming in his full glory and all that kind of stuff. Talking about him being king. He is Mashiach, you know. So technically you put piece everything together. Yeshua read us the Hakel much and even more so like demonstrated it. But anyway, it says the beginning of the book of Devarim serves as an introduction to the following passages, exhorting the listeners to internalize them properly. So that's your first step. First step of the Hakel, make sure you internalize this. Next one, it says the paragraph of the Shema expresses mastery. The first paragraph of the Shema expresses God's mastery over us which frees us from the world's materiality. This is why the whole picture of riding on a donkey is a thing. We need to be over, above materiality. We need to use materiality to fulfill our mission. Okay? And so we're free from materiality. This enables us to devote ourselves to Hashem, His Torah, and His commandments. Then we move on to the second paragraph of the Shema, which expresses God's mastery over nature, which he manipulates in accordance with our behavior, rewarding us with rain in the proper time, if we fulfill his commandments, etc. Teaching us that our livelihood depends primarily on his blessing and secondarily on our own efforts. So that's a beautiful balance to know that as long as we're focused on Hashem, He's going to move and manipulate things where they need to go. And our efforts are the secondary aspect to that. That, yes, we must put our hands to the plow, but at the same time, Hashem more so is in charge. He's in charge of what the traffic's going to be, what the weather's going to be. And if all these different predictions are made, we can move through those things uh, meritoriously or, you know, beseeching Hashem and he can do whatever he wants to do with that. But we just need to be 
obedient to our post. So an aspect of Vayelik is walking through, mastering materiality of this world, knowing that nature will be manipulated and moved to do whatever it needs to do to help us fulfill Hashem's mission. This is the beautiful thing about us taking charge in the redemption because creation's already groaning for it because we brought that on creation, like all the thorns and the thistles and the horribleness in the world that's happening and all the groaning, that if we're working for redemption, Hashem is going to help creation mold to that aspect. That's the power and the influence that we have. So that's the second paragraph of the Shema. The next one talks about pay your tithes. You know, I don't know how much how much we can say this, but we all need to just kind of get this into our psyche to be okay with saying pay your tithes. And I just want to speak to that point because this is why tithing is so manipulated and abused by Rome, the church, Asaph, Edom, because they know the power of it. The power of tithing is like it's ridiculous. It's nuclear fission at its finest. It doesn't matter how much you pay as long as you're paying your appropriate portion. And remember, you're to give no more than a fifth of your income. So you have the first and second tithe. You have your taruma and all that. And you're only supposed to tithe your grain, your wine, and your oil. <laughs> but we don't have any of that if we're not farmers. And so, you know, that's our paycheck. So if we tithe appropriately... No matter how much our income is, if all of us are tithing, things are going to happen. You know, there would be no need for the shul to have fundraising and drives and things like that because everyone who's a part of the shul, Hashem already has that worked out. He's like, this is the budget I created for the shul by the people that are here, and it's naturally going to meet the financial needs of the shul. So therefore, the people who are at the shul are obligated to fulfill that need that Hashem has already set, already up to take care of. Because remember, Hashem takes care of things before they're needed to be taken care of. So if we knew we needed a mikvah at Sar Shalom, if we knew we needed, you know, new sidewalks and parking lots and a place for the sukkah and things like that, we needed landscaping stuff and renovations of all sorts. Any other types of things that all the Lapid Network needs. He's like, okay, so if I bring in these people, if they pay their tithe, it'll all get worked out. That's literally the power of tithing. And you can see why so easily that gets manipulated. And it's like, oh, I'm not going to give my money to no man. And it's like, if, if a man is taking the money out of the offering box, that's not your problem. Hashem is going to take care of that, first of all. So that's copping out, telling Hashem he's not just. Second of all, you know, the tithe is for the whole general community. Because you're tithing, when you show up to shul, there's AC. Because you're tithing, when you show up to shul, there are lights. So, you know, what's going to happen if you don't have a shul to show up to because you haven't been paying your tithe? And it's just kind of like, oh, if I would have paid, really, if I would have paid my, my whatever amount of money, like that would have, that would have helped. It's like, yes, that would have helped because Hashem has it worked out to where, again, the people who are at the shul and what they make, that is the budget to cover the shul. So might want to think about that. Anyway, so this is part of the Hakel. 
And it says that this expresses God's mastery over our wealth as its owner. He commands us to give part of it to the poor. So that's the thing. If you're not paying your tithe, you're also saying, God, this is my money, not your money. And he's like, where did you get your breath from? Where did you get your strength from? Where did you get your resources from to get all this money? And where did you get your mental capability to get all this money? Because there are people who can't even work for themselves because of disabilities. And Hashem is like, and I gave you abilities and you're doing what? So, you know, tis the season for Shuva, because that's kind of, you know, that steps on a lot of toes, you know, and that kind of that, you know, that shakes me up a little bit, too, you know, because I, I think about the fact of, uh, you know, it's just kind of like, but what if it seems like if I pay my tithe that I won't be able to pay all these other bills? But then when you get into the what ifs and if I start living by sight then I'm not living by Amuna, by faith, because I'm supposed to do that. So it's a trust Hashem, and it's just like, okay, who's the master of our wealth? Who is its owner? And what did Hashem command us to do? And remember, Teshuvah is our opinion of the one who we're in love with, which is Hashem. And so if he's the one who's commanding it, it's really not about what my desires are, because his command comes before my desires. And that's how... Teshuva is ingrained, you know, that it's not about what I desire, but it's about what he desires. And that comes first. So another important thing to note that if you don't pay your tithes, you're perpetuating the exile. You can thank Show Enough Pincus for that, which really you can just thank Baba Metzia for that, because that's where that comes from. Some along the lines, Cliff Notes, uh, this was a couple of par show to go, so it's on the uh, podcast list here. I believe it was Parsha Ki Tavo that talked about it. But anyway, about not opening your, uh, uh, make sure you open your hand to your brother. Cliff Notes of this is that Hashem, or uh, Slika, the Klippa, which is the force of impurity, that destroyed the temple is the hand that is empowered to keep us in exile when we close our hand and not be generous with our money. But when we open our hand and we're generous with our money, we break the hand of the klipa that destroyed the temple and remove it so that the redemption can continue to process out so the more we pay our tithe the more we rebuild the more we bring on the redemption that's the cliff notes of it but i did a whole podcast on it. it's called pay your tithes and uh zadaka i think is what i actually titled it but we just need to get pay pay your tithes is really the bottom line but yeah so that's either parshaki tavo parshaki tete you can check that out um and the last part of the Hakel, there's two more. This next one, it says, uh, we go through the passages containing the blessings and the curses, except or which express our covenantal bond with God, elevating the previous three notions, tithing, nature, uh, Hashem's mastery over us. It says, it elevates these three notions from the components of a relationship between two entities 
two expressions of our inseparable oneness. Again, Vayelek Gematria of 66 is the same as Yavon, who was all about separating us from Hashem. And so here you go with the Hakel, as it's talking about our inseparable oneness. So with Vayelek, you have to make sure that you overcome Yavon. And the only way to do that is through going round for round, toe to toe with you know. All right, anyway. The last part is concluding with the passage about the king all the way back to Parsha Shoftim. This emphasizes how we must subjugate ourselves and all aspects of our lives. Say all aspects of our lives. All aspects of our lives. Subjugated to God for the purpose of the king is to inspire and imbue us, his subjects, with true devotion to God. This is why we have a king, because he should inspire us and imbue us with true devotion to God. This is why Mashiach says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And this is why we I read earlier, uh, especially in the 10 Days of Repentance podcast, that we are conformed to the image of Hashem's son. Like that is the purpose of us being called and justified and sanctified and glorified like that whole process and it says you must read from this torah before all yisrael we saw above in devarim seventeen fifteen that we are all required to appoint a metaphorical king over ourselves here we go i.e a spiritual counselor responsible for ensuring that we stay firmly on the path of spiritual growth i.e. this is why we need a rabbi we need a teacher we need a mentor of some sort and it says this primary responsibility is to read to us i.e. to inculcate us the passages from the torah that the real king reads to the people at the septennial assembly notice it says that this king is to inculcate us with passages from the Torah that the real king reads. This is why Yeshua said, call no man rabbi, because you only have one master. Because when you have these other rabbis, if they pull you away from Hashem, and if you focus upon them being your master, and they don't ever point you back to the, the real master, they don't ever inculcate you and imbue you with teachings of the master then that's not good this is why all the rabbis are technically one especially when they're son of so-and-so son of so-and-so or in the name of so-and-so or in the name of so-and-so it's all one strand because all the rabbinim who comment in the talmud they're all outflowing from what was handed down to moshe back to our overview here in vayelik where it says that uh where is it at this is how we understand the sage's statement that any new insight that a veteran student will ever derive has already been given to moshe at sinai so you don't have this separate aspect from hashem basically so when he's saying called on man rabbi make sure that you're not forsaking your true master by calling this guy your master 
your your king, your your leader here is supposed to inculcate you with what the real king reads, what the real king teaches. So there's that. Um, then we go on to say the primary lesson is contained in the first paragraph of the Shema, which focuses on accepting the yoke of the kingdom, i.e. submitting to God's authority. This is followed by the second paragraph of the Shema, which teaches us that material success is dependent upon heeding God's commandments. Material success is dependent upon heeding God's commandments. And so my final point of the evening, I want to bring it home with what is so crazy about the Yom Tov seasons. This is super important that all of the possible train wrecks and airplane pattern crisscross uh, communication that could possibly happen. This is the season. You would think, oh, no, it's not because we're so focused on Hashem. We're all making shuva. Well, guess what? If you have any holes, they're going to get filled with little critters. And this Torah portion totally brings us down in Devarim 31.17. And it says... And the Hasidic insights, it is not because God, our God, or is it not because our God is no longer among us that these evils have befallen us? This verse may be read. It is because my God is not within me that this evil has found me. Rav dove there of Lubavitch explained this verse as referring to the Baal Shem Tov's teaching. That in order to show us our own faults, we are naturally disposed to we are disposed. We're naturally disposed not to notice or to rationalize. God shows them to us and other people. In other words, our little blind spots on what our flaws and what our own faults are. We we are so blind to them that Hashem has to put that in other people. And when that happens, that creates all sorts of social anxiety, conflicts, whatever you want to call them. And this is the time that those things happen. Hashem is allowing these things to happen to push us into more shuva, to bring us into a deeper bond. Uh, they brought down in Hasidic Insights back in Parsha Beshalach that, you know, Moshe connects the people to Hashem. And they mentioned when a rope is separated and it's tied up in a knot the rope is actually closer than it was before and this is what Moshe was to the Jewish people if you'll notice that aspect because the Jews and Hashem were usually one and then you know we separate ourselves from Hashem with all of our different sins and things but that rope being cut and separated was mended back with a knot with this reconciliation with this uh, renewal if you will and so literally that's what has to happen, you know, from person to person, you know, whoever those people are that, you know, if you have any kind of things that are happening, you're like, oh, I'm so put out. I'm frustrated with this person. Can't stand that person. That person needs to get some get a life because they're beyond needing to get help. 
you know, you start like throwing all these things around. Well, the thing is, is those are being uh, shown and projected because you can't see that in yourself. So this is why I want to point us to two passages. The Agarit to the Yehudim and Mashiach, which is known as Hebrews. And it says in chapter 12, going into 13. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, let us hold on to Chen the Chesed, loving kindness and grace of Hashem, through which we may offer to Hashem acceptable avodat kodesh, holy worship, holy service, with Yerat Hashemayim, with fear of heaven, and Chasidu, with godliness, for indeed our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect hospitality, for by this some without having knowledge of it have entertained angels. Have remembrance of the prisoners in prison as if being bound with chains with them and those being tortured as though you were tortured also. So this is the thing. We have to take the consuming fire of Hashem and apply it to these situations. Put ourselves in their shoes. Look at ourselves as the very prisoners that we see. Look at ourselves as the very torturing that we feel or that we seem to look at or experience. Okay, if somebody is bothering you that much, you have to place yourself in that situation. What is going on? What is running through their mind? Do they, do I know what's going through my mind? What's, why is this happening? You know, you have to really do that. Expand the whole scope. Don't just see it as, as that person and they need to, and we need to, you know, it's like, no. What is going on with me that's causing this to happen? Because the only reason I'm able to see this is because it's a fault that I have. And so that's kind of where the rubber meets the road. Because now you need to not only refrain from, you know, really going off on that person, but begin to intercede. And this is why the whole understanding about people who need to be rebuked, you have to be willing to rebuke yourself as you rebuke them. Because again, this is really your faults being shown here. We're all mirrors of each other. And so if we're all able to come to this, this place of unity and work through this together, confess together, repent together, encourage one another, this is expressed in the very thing that we do as a whole mishpachah during the Yom Kippur service. We all strike our chest for different sins that we didn't even do. Some sins were like, I've never done that. And it's like, but you don't know in your congregation who has. So the more that you make teshuva, even though you haven't done it, you're causing all of the mirror situations and the person who's actually doing that to be elevated. And so there's this whole like communal tikkun, this communal atonement that begins to happen because you're all working together to and brotherly love to consume all of the sin and, and move it out. So that's a, that's one of the things that's going on. And so obviously, again, you have boundaries on that. If things are just way over the top over the hand, you can't go, oh, let me just forgive that person because, you know, that's something I did. 
It's like, okay, so the balance in that, you do have to make sure that you go, hey, that was a violation. Let's not, let's not do that. And then furthermore, take it from there to where you're like, I just, you know, you know, I really don't know what to say as far as like, you really want to make sure you understand where that person's coming from. You really want them to understand where you're coming from. So this is where I was also on the fast of Gedalia, praying that Hashem will supply all of us with tact. Because that's ultimately what we're going to need for all the corrections that need to get made. You know, when there are violations, we have to have tact in how we do things. So may Hashem supply that in triple abundant measures so that we can all do that. And then we can all elevate. Because this is what it leads to. Tehillim 133. He name Atov Umanaim Shevetakim Gam Yachad. How good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together. So I want to read that from the Art Scroll series, Art Scroll Tanakh series, uh, Tehillim 133, and give us a little insight here. And this from Tehillim 133, verse 1 says this. Certain things are tov, which is good, but not naim, which is pleasant, which is where the word Naomi or the name Naomi comes from, by the way, naim. And it says such as potent medicine that affects a cure, but it tastes bitter. Other things are pleasant to the taste or senses, but they're not good or healthy for the body. OK, you ain't got to be like that commentary. Anyway, didn't take it personally, I guess. It says, such as certain overly sweet foods. Wow, really just going to get all in my grill like that. However, brotherhood and harmony are both good and pleasant. Mismor le toda. And it says, uh, the dwelling of brothers in unity, Shevet Achim Gam Yachad. Rashi observes that we look forward longingly to the future idyllic state of bliss when all Yisrael will achieve an atmosphere of Shevet Achim, dwelling of brothers. The words Gam Yachad, which is literally also together, may be translated as also with the one, i.e. together with God. God eagerly joins any Jewish community where shalom and love are supreme. Zohar explains, this is from Zohar Akare, that this verse refers to the golden cherubim that were atop the holy ark. They look like identical twins and scripture describes them as fraternal terms. Their faces were towards one another, towards his brother. Shemot 2520. The Kerevim served as a barometer of the intensity of God's relationship with Israel. When the Kerevim turned away from each other, they demonstrated God's displeasure with Israel. See Yoma 54a. Thus, our verse states that when the two brothers, i.e. the Kerevim, were seen to dwell together, the Jews knew that the Yachad, the one, God, also Gam, was with them. Continuing on, it says the Jewish nation is composed of two estates, the political sector and the spiritual. Moshe had the status of a king of Israel, Zevakim 102a. 
headed the judicial, legislative, and executive affairs of the people, of the Jews, whereas Aharon the Kohen Gadol led the spiritual service. These devoted brothers employed mutual love and tolerance to fuse the two estates into one harmonious unit, which functioned without friction. And then I want to, okay, here we go. There's a lot of commentary. I just, I want to read all of it. So I'm going to. Radak explains that both the king and the high priest are anointed with oil, which is a symbol of the smooth and pleasant. Oil is a lubricant that prevents friction. In the future, the king Mashiach will live in total harmony with the Kohen Gadol of his day. Which is funny, right? Because Mashiach ben Yosef and Mashiach ben David are likened to like Moshe and Aharon. So that's funny. He's going to live in total unity with himself. That's that's okay. And it says he's going to live in total harmony with the high priest of his day, which is so funny because when Mashiach ben Yosef is here, Zachariah or uh, Yochanan ben Zachariah was here, who was literally the Kohen Gadol, the rightful Kohen Gadol, and him and Yeshua were cousins, and they totally lived in harmony, harmony with one another. So anyway, uh, the prophet Zechariah stated that such a relationship existed between the king and the Kohen Gadol, who reigned in the beginning of the Second Temple era. So with the beginning of the Second Temple era, you have the king and the priests, and unity and with the end of the second temple era namely about 40 years before it ended you have yeshua who's likened to the king well he is the king and then you have yokanon who's the cohen and they're both dwelling together so there's that little olive tab action and this is the meaning of the verse zechariah 6 13 and the council of shalom shall be between them both last insight here we go According to Tana de Rebbe Eliyahu Rabbah 13, this verse describes the smooth transition from youth to old age. Fortunate is the man who performed good deeds in his youth and repeated his meritorious actions in his old age. Both periods of life are then good and pleasant and complement each other like close brothers. Amen. So, Bezrat Hashem, what I hope you take from this last section is that should you be a part of or have been a part of or know about any kind of unfortunate catastrophes situations that we must seek to bring the good and the pleasant together, that we must know that these outbursts and these projections are from our own faults. And that we first and foremost definitely must fix it within ourselves. And as we go about correcting, that we do it with such tact. And that teshuva, repentance, remorse, resolution, reconciliation, smoothness is the ultimate goal. Because like we just read, a community where shalom and unity are, that's where Hashem is going to come dwell. Do we want Hashem to dwell with us? I guarantee you at Lapid we do. And we have to, because if we're going to be people that bring the redemption, it has to be We all have to dwell together with the unity of Hashem, and we all have to be continuously walking, growing, progressing in our faith, 
and during this exile, really standing up with the power of Hashem and going forth. So we're headed into 5780. Who knows what this year holds, but Bezrat Hashem, it holds the final redemption. And Bezrat Hashem, all of us are avenging the world, bringing forth the light of Mashiach, shining the light of the Lapid and dark places, and just really maximizing who we are as Hashem has sent us into this world on a divine mission. Let's fulfill it. Let's bring redemption. Let's bring global redemption. Harakaman hu yezakinu limot hamashiach ul chaye haolam haba baruch haba b'shem Adonai. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher natan lanu Torah temet vekaye haolam natabetokeinu Baruch atah Adonai noten haTorah Amen. May it be Adonai's will that we are inscribed and sealed for life and for a good year. B'Shem Yeshua.